Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkoff, and we have a special show for us today because we are joined by Mary Trump, author of Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man. Hi, Mary. Hi, David. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you and congratulations. I I understand that in your First week, the book has sold something like 1.35 million copies, which is more than David Sanger's books, <laughs> and in fact is twice as, it's, it, I think the average human heart beats 700,000 times a week. So you're sort of twice, like every time somebody's heartbeat, you sell two books. Two books. Um, Another way to think about this, David, is that if you took all of my books, all of Rose's books, and all of your <laughs> books together, we would be happy if it came out to that number. <laughs> I, I think we're missing the bigger picture, though. It, it sold more than the Art of the Deal has in yeah. decades. Yeah, I was I was going to get to that because uh, Art of the Deal was released in like 1987, right? Yeah, I think so. And that was um, the biggest book other than the Bible. I think I heard the president say. Yeah. 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 Well, I guess it's my, my favorite. So. <laughs> um, well, congratulations on that. Um, yeah. uh, clearly, I mean, I, I I've read it. And I, and I have to say, um, what I, I read many reviews, but what I was not prepared for um, is what a great read it is, how well written it is. And it's a very, very compelling story, very well told. So congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I'm pleased as, as, as a d- deeply Columbia-oriented person that the Columbia Masters in, in English paid off. It did, apparently. <laughs> so, yeah, who knew? Yeah, well, we, you know, I'm, I'm pleased. I'm pleased with that. Okay, so we're going to do some rounds of questions, and we'll start with Rosa, and then we'll go to David, and then I have one, and we'll just keep keep going. Okay. So, Rosa, kick it off. Great, thank you, Mary. Thank you so much for being with us. And and I every I haven't read full book yet. Uh, I just got it from Amazon, but I've read a lot of reviews, and uh, all I could think of was that that great Philip Larkin poem, "This Be the Verse That Begins." Of course, with they fuck you up, your mom and dad. <laughs> yeah. uh, they do not mean to, but they do. Yeah. Um, but uh, it was pretty depressing. Um, um, and, and certainly, just in terms of my own observations, only seeing uh, uh, President Trump on television certainly seemed right on target uh, in terms of your analysis. But, but I have... I have a lot of questions, but, but one of them, one of the things I've been really obsessed with in the last few months has been essentially, you know, what if he loses and won't leave? Yeah. Um, you know, is, is from your perspective as someone who has seen him in action in many, many more settings than the rest of us, 
How do you think he would react if it looks like he's not winning the election? And there are all kinds of variants of this not winning scenario, ranging mm-hmm. from clearly not winning as of no. 2 a.m. on election night to is ahead in terms of the in-person ballots cast, but then it quickly in the next few days becomes apparent that when the mail-in ballots are counted, his lead is going to vanish. Um, Do you see him as someone who will do whatever it takes to cling to office, or do you see him as as getting grumpy and saying, I'm taking my ball and going home and just saying, I'm out of here. I have better things to do anyway. I'm richer than you. Yeah. It depends largely on two uh, separate issues that may actually uh, come together. First of all, the margin of the loss, or hopefully the margin of Joe Biden's victory, matters tremendously. Uh, If it's so large that it overcomes all of the uh, built-in advantages that an incumbent has and um, somebody who's completely willing to cheat has... um, I think the narcissistic injury will be so deep and painful that he'll have to spin away from it and just figure out a way to leave keeping his ego intact. Um, So that's why we need a a landslide. Uh, We do for a lot of reasons, but that's one reason. Unfortunately, there's there's another uh, potential problem and it has to do with the people surrounding him. So... You know, if it's if he loses, maybe not by a huge margin, but if he loses legitimately and people around him are encouraging him to stay in, stay in it, you know, not for his benefit, but for theirs, they'll certainly make it seem like it's you'll avoid jail. (laughs) For example, um, you haven't depleted the Treasury completely yet. You know, we still have some work to do there. He may be able to sway them, uh, which is, again, why uh, the margin needs to be so big, Um, especially also since we have somebody like Bill Barr uh, willing to do uh, seemingly anything um, to perpetuate this horror we're living through. So that's that's my take. Hopefully it's going to be really boring and, you know, it's just it's just going to go the way it needs to. Although, I, you know, what I, I wish I could say to people who don't seem to find anything remarkable about where we are, like in any other election, have we ever been faced with this? Oh, you know, maybe I'll accept them, maybe I won't. It, the fact that people aren't picking up. 1976. Yeah, right. But but yeah, no, no. And, and, and actually, just, just to follow up on that, I, I, I just came from a, uh, a forum um with uh, about a dozen senior retired military officials, a dozen or so uh, election law experts and national security law experts, which consisted, as of the time, I said, well, I've got to go do a podcast now, goodbye, everybody, of of all these people saying, this is stunning, this is shocking, I can't imagine how we got here, I can't, I could never have imagined that we would get here. Yeah. I I don't know, I think it's pretty imaginable. Uh, This is a a very long-standing project. I'd say we're going back at least four decades to, you know, of um, the the pump being primed for this sort of thing. And, uh, you know, it's sort of how it, we shouldn't have been surprised by the pandemic either, you know. Um, but I guess people are easily distracted and easily swayed 
So it's really unfortunate that we find ourselves here, uh, especially since there are so many um, ways in which uh, voting has been threatened already. So like if we were dealing with a level playing field, I'd be a lot less concerned, but between voter suppression and uh, the nonsense of voter fraud and, you know, what just happened in uh, Florida with the, the take, taking away once again uh, felons' rights by instituting essentially a poll tax, you know, it, it's really worrisome, which is why I think the margin is so incredibly important, turnout and the margin. Yep. Excellent point. And, and I'd like to turn to David, but David, First, um, have you noticed the mug on the shelf behind Mary? Is it a deep state mug? I think it says I'm on Team Rosa. (laughs) Yes, it's actually a a thorn of (laughs) entropy (laughs) mug, but you can't see it. I I changed the wording. No, I have been working very hard on getting my swag arranged so like my head's not blocking it. So I think I finally got it right. So I'm very pleased. Well, we're very grateful. And I, I, to to reflect my gratitude, I'm going to wear this um, Deep State Radio (laughs) mask. Duration of the podcast. Well, you guys do need a a thorn of entropy line. We do. do. Forget about the tiara of optimism until next year. (laughs) I've been begging for it. And David tells me that it will injure our listeners and that would not do. Well, I, well, but well, now that Mary is making this point, I think we should I, go I wear for it. it. Right. And David, I've, been, I've, been, I've been wearing my deep state um, mask all over the state of Vermont, and I periodically run into people who reassure that tell me that they're they're reassured to know that the deep state really exists, and you know they basically bought into each one of those, and they see me coming with the mask, and they just assume I'm just of a like mind. Well, and, and 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 you are. So, so anyway, why don't you why don't you pose a question to Mary? So, uh, Mary, this was um, great. I'm I'm about halfway through. Um, as David pointed out, it is also beautifully written and and well organized, and it's not a screed, which is um, uh, which is great. Um, there's always there've always been two sort of competing views you've heard from President Trump's um, critics. And one of them during the campaign and during the Russia time was he didn't expect he would win, as your book seems to, to suggest, that he uh, they weren't terribly organized, which I can attest to from having covered them at that time. Yeah. I did two lengthy interviews with Maggie Haberman of the president on foreign policy, and he was, you know, barely hanging on to um, some of the questions and made up a lot of the answers along the way. So that would take you to someone who was not capable of sort of running a foreign conspiracy to try to get aid in in getting elected. Mm -hmm. And you get the other explanation, which is, well, he's had four years to go work on it. The relationship, this, this, the inability to criticize Putin is all about trying to get support again in um, uh, this election. I'm not saying I subscribe to that, but certainly that is something you hear from people. That mm-hmm. is all quite well organized, if not from him, then people around him. Yeah. That he doesn't need to be that organized, and he knows that if he just throws out there that the ballots are, uh, that mail-in ballots are a way to fraud. People will pick it up. So when you are done with your analysis, which side of this do you subscribe to? The 
Donald Trump, who was full of emotion but couldn't organize an effort to fix an election, or one who, beneath that, actually could? Oh, definitely the former. Um, what, what he does do, though, with kind of a stunning accuracy, is find people who are willing to do the thinking and enacting of these things for him. Um, so I think initially what, what I say in the book is at first it was very much like every other run quote unquote run for the presidency had been for him, just a branding opportunity, right? And then when it became clear that uh, the completely absurd way the, the Republican primary was handled gave him an advantage and, you know, he ended up with the dom- nomination. Um, I really do think that between that and having heard enough to get the sense that he was going to have outside help, which he's perfectly willing to take advantage of, by the way. Um, You know, he did want to win, even though it wasn't really winning. Um, But he made other people do the work for him. Uh, That's that's pretty much uh, consistent with how he's done things in the past. And, you know, it's just what he's doing now is similar to what he did in 2016, but again, with the advantage of the incumbent and, the power and and the message uh, that comes along with that by undermining in the middle of a pandemic that at this point feels like he's making worse on purpose, quite honestly, undermining the validity of the only way people can vote safely in November with mail-in ballots. It's all of a piece, you know, Um, and it's another one of those things like we were talking about earlier, like when has anybody ever questioned the legitimacy of mail-in voting or, you know, the post office, for example. Um, but that's what he does. He undermines to... Uh, the post office was a very sinister institution. Well, coming from you, that's not surprising, right? <laughs> <laughs> My well-known lifelong paranoia. Yes. <laughs> um, but... I think you're in the minority there. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, I've bought more stamps in my life than I will ever use because people don't mail things anymore just in support. Um, but it is, it is what he does. You know, he, he weakens the, the, the field. So, so introduces paranoia and uncertainty, which makes it easier for the people around him to take advantage of all of that. Uh, you know, it's the same thing he does with distraction and division. It just, um, keeps people's focus on the wrong things and, and leaves him an opening. In the answer to that, uh, Mary, you, you said that, uh, I thought this was jumped out at me, that you thought that he believes at this moment that he just wants to make COVID worse. Mm. But the, the, the restarting of these briefings in recent days and so forth were widely interpreted, maybe wrongly, and tell us what your interpretation is, as a belated recognition that he was getting huge heat in the polls for mishandling the COVID crisis. Certainly the polling numbers we have seen have been universally poor for him on this, even in states that he won last time around. So um, do you believe he's now come to recognize that his handling of this was a, uh, is a liability that could be, um, uh, that could be uh, enormously damaging to his campaign? Or do you think he actually believes he's handled it well? Oh, he has no choice but to believe he's handled it well. 
And when I say he's purposely trying to make it worse, I don't mean that he's actively, you know, uh, introducing new uh, strains of the virus. Uh, what I what I mean is that because he can never be wrong um, and never course correct, because course correcting would mean admitting that you hadn't handled something correctly, right? Uh, which is a weakness punishable by death in my family. So... Um, the reason it got so out of control was because he was incapable of acknowledging its existence um, or of doing what needed to be done to stop it once it started getting out of control. I think what's happening now is less about um, believing that, uh, you know, it's he needs to take a different tack uh, and more about realizing on some level anyway, that this is, this is a way to win in the moment. So he thought he was winning, doing what he was doing, and now he thinks he's winning now because that's, that's the arc of his life. You know, he exists in, in milliseconds. You know, I just won. I'm winning now. I'm going to win next. Uh, so I, I think once, once he sh- – the shift isn't a recognition of anything other than – He's figured out a new way to win. And, uh, you know, he also probably missed the attention from the briefings. And sadly, he w- is so busy, he can't throw the pitch out at the Yankees game. Yeah, sorry we're going to miss that. Um, yeah. But, uh, but, you know, p- picking up on, on, on David's question a little bit, one of the things that struck me in the book was not, you know, I mean, you, you read it and you know what history is and come away with the conclusion this is not a mastermind of anything. However, because of the, na- the way his upbringing was, because, uh, the way you describe it, mm-hmm. he seems to be the perfect sap, the perfect guy to be managed by yeah. somebody else. And that that's the role that he's used to because that's what his father did. That's right. And that when you look at a, a Putin or some of these other characters out there, mm-hmm. it, it, the, the roadmap is very clear. Yeah. It, it, it seems to me to get them to do it. So he might theoretically want to win the election. And then if the Russians come along and say, well, if we do X, Y, and Z, he'll go along with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it accrues to his benefit. It doesn't have to be his idea. Right. right. Yeah. And I mean, I would say that the, the Russia want wanting X, Y, and Z came before his wanting to win, probably. Um, but the the through line you describe is is absolutely accurate. And it was one one of the things that struck me when I when I started constructing this narrative was how many terrifying similarities there are between my family and the Republican Party as it's currently constituted and how straight the line is. It it was really unnerving. Um, But as far as, you know, uh, Donald's role here, my my grandfather was a straight-up sociopath. And one of the things sociopaths do is use other human beings, whether they're your children or not, to your own ends. My my father was characterologically... uh, incapable of being the kind of person my grandfather wanted, you know, the killer, the tough guy, willing to cheat, lie, steal. So he got killed off. Um, Donald learned very early on that in order to be of use and, you know, therefore 
continue to exist in whatever fashion, he needed to, to serve that purpose for my grandfather. And that's probably one of the most profound things my grandfather did. He made Donald eminently useful to more powerful, smarter, maybe even more craven men, which is really saying something. Interesting. Rosa? Uh, you know, um, I have a question that relates to your dual role as a family member and a psychologist. So mm-hmm. obviously you've been, you've, you've been at pains to say, hey, I'm not engaging in a sort of formal analysis or medical assessment of Donald Trump. These are my mm-hmm. observations as, as someone who has been in his family, has seen him up close for many years and also happens to have some knowledge, obviously, mm-hmm. of, of uh, psychology. One of the things that I've been a little, a little bit baffled by, and, and maybe this is unfair to, to other psychologists and psychiatrists, is what sometimes strikes me as this kind of spurious professionalism, this, this sort of like, oh, even though the, more or less the entire world, aside from his base, looks at him and says, this guy, this guy's got some mental psychological issues. Um, you know, and, and he he's, seems like a narcissist. He seems sociopathic. Uh, he also seems like he might have what we politely now call cognitive disabilities. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on there. And, and, and that seems sort of crushingly obvious, I think, to almost everybody who observes him, including people who have no formal training in, in psychology. Um, and yet... Uh, the sort of official line from the psychiatric and psychological communities has been, we can't, we can't diagnose somebody. He's not our patient. We can't possibly offer a view on this. Don't ask us. No, we have no comment on whether he's a sociopathic narcissist. Um, is, is, what's your take on that? Because my, my take is that, that like many other claims of professionalism, it becomes a way to sort of evade responsibility. And, you know, is that, do you, do you, do you find yourself thinking, no, that's, are, are there things that I'm missing here? I mean, especially in a COVID world where all the HIPAA requirements have been waived and everybody in the world now does video consultations about everything. Is there, is there something I'm missing about why, why we would want professionals to refrain from offering their armchair diagnostic thoughts um, or, 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 or does it seem like this is just, this is a moment, if ever there was a moment for people to come out and just say, Hey, yes, I am a psychiatrist. And this guy, this guy should be somewhere other than the white house. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great, uh, commentary, um, on what's happening. Um, I, I look at two different issues. One is, uh, that doesn't have anything to do specifically uh, with the moment we're in, but, you know, our history, the the bifurcation of physical and mental health uh, in the West, we can talk ad nauseum about the fact that Hillary Clinton uh, almost fainted because she had pneumonia, but we can't talk about the fact that we have um, somebody in the Oval Office who has so many psychopathologies, he can't tell the truth, he can't uh, process information, um, he can't control his impulses. So it's, I agree with you. It, it doesn't make any sense from that perspective alone. Um, the other thing is, uh, regardless, and you know, I'm not bound, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not practicing in the field anymore. I haven't for a long time. Um, I'm not licensed. Um, so, 
and, and I actually have spent a lot of time with him. So I don't feel bound by that. And if other people do, then they have their priorities wrong. And I mean, maybe it takes a, a declaration from the top, you know, the APA or something to release people from whatever it, I guess it's still called the Goldwater rule because there has to be a duty to warn here. Yeah, right. You know, um, Absolutely. And, right. And, you know, in, in the prologue, the reason I didn't diagnose him is because partially because as I say, his pathologies are so complex and you really do need testing, but I just sort of laid out mm-hmm. potential diagnosis or, you know, potential symptoms that could fit in. There's also so much comorbidity and a potential uh, substance abuse uh, issue and a sleep disorder. But in the context of what we're talking about, you know, if a psychiatrist, psychologist doesn't feel comfortable saying with certainty he has narcissistic personality disorder with sociopathic features, because, you know, you can't really do that, would say, look at his behavior. You know, it's the same thing with the racism. Who cares if he said the N-word? Well, I mean, I care, but it, it's much less relevant than the fact that he's racist and he's enacting racist policies. What's much more relevant than his diagnosis is the fact that, you know, not, not to put a too fine a point on it, he's acting like a crazy person, you know, who's out of control and is so out of his depth and so yeah. terrified that he's not going to do what's in the best interest of this country if it's not in his best interest. And clearly I, that's what's happening. I've said, I think I probably said on this, on this podcast that in, in a way I, I, I blame him. I, I view him as far less morally culpable than many of the people around him. If I were, I'm a fake lawyer. I have a law degree, but I don't practice and I, I'm not a member of the bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just teach. Um, <laughs> um, but, 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 you know, were I an actual lawyer, a real life lawyer, um, and were I representing Donald Trump in, in any kind of legal proceeding, I would be arguing diminished capacity. You know, I would be arguing that he fundamentally, for, for, for reasons of intellectual cognitive disability and mental illness, lacks the capacity to appreciate fully the nature and consequence of his actions. Yep. Mitch McConnell, on the other hand, <laughs> but 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 no, it, yep. it has often seemed to me that it, it's it's hard to feel sorry for Trump because he's doing so much terrible, terrible harm to so many millions of people. Right. But there is a, a fairly deep level, as, as you make clear, in which it's boy, he's not all there. Right, and you know, I two things I completely agree with you, and that's one of the things I was trying to say. Donald is not the problem. Bill Barr. who's destroying the Justice Department from within. Mike Pompeo, who is destroying institutional memory in the State Department and doesn't even know what diplomacy is or what it's for. Uh, Mitch McConnell, who has totally diminished um, the the Senate and um, the the process of nominating uh, judges uh, just for whatever, you know, I think with McConnell, it's, it's, it's power and control and, you know, wanting a one-party state. For Bill Barr, it's just power. And Mike Pompeo, I don't know, he's got some um, white evangelical um, apocalyptic thing going on, which I can't even believe is something we have to be saying right now about our Secretary of State. On the other hand, I had no intention of um, letting Donald off the hook for anything. I think it's perfectly reasonable to have compassion for that child. 
who was so abandoned and never loved properly and, you know, uh, abused. I mean, I, I don't think he was abused in the way my father was, but, you know, helplessly watching somebody else be abused is a form of abuse. So that's awful. And uh, I do have compassion for that. Donald Trump, the adult, is totally responsible. He knows the difference between right and wrong. He knows what the rules are. He just doesn't think they apply to him. Uh, and he's getting so much help that they clearly don't. I mean, if we look, if, oh God, not that I want to, but if we look back at, you know, the um, impeachment fiasco uh, and sham, um, we understand why he keeps doing what he's doing because he's getting away with it. From the time he was a five-year-old, he's been getting away with it. David? So this is a podcast chiefly about national security, though we wander off into other um, uh, discussions like, you know, yeah. Rose's fascination with um, underground tunnels to live yes. in. And, well, right. I I think right. that's a pretty reasonable fascination at this right. point. Yeah, this please, point. And, please and, and, ask me about the Middle East. That's, that's yeah. not paranoid at all. Yeah, no, <laughs> right no, no. not even slightly. Not, actually. Um, so I wanted to go back to, um, I mentioned Putin before, but tell us a little more about how you explain both the relationship between President Trump and President Putin. Mm-hmm. Um Two people haven't spent very much time together, and we don't believe it had ever had ever even met until that first meeting in um, Hamburg in 2017. Mm-hmm. And then the president and other authoritarians that he keeps expressing admiration for. And, and tell us what you think that is all about, whether you think that admiration is about seeking a transference of their powers to him or wishing that he was running a country that allowed him to do all the things he wanted to go do? What's your, how does this all fit together? Well, I think both of those things are true. Um, You know, he thinks it reflects well on him uh, to be in such close proximity to people who have that kind of power and who aren't in their own way held to account. Uh, and yeah, it's, a, it's absolutely a form of envy. I mean, he said it, you know, uh, Xi declares himself president for life. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, you know, Putin has this completely fictional, um, approval rate of, I don't know, it's in the nineties or something. And Donald would love that. Right. Um, but you know, it, obviously it goes back a long way and it starts with my grandfather who, and, and again, I don't think it's that my grandfather, that Donald felt threatened by my grandfather in the way my dad did. Um, it was much more re- a reflection of what was happening with my dad. But he learned at a really young age, you know, in order to survive, you need to be my grandfather's idea of a tough guy and a killer. Um, so he took that to heart. Um And he also took it a step further because not only, and also another thing that was considered a grave weakness was admitting mistakes, which I've talked about earlier. So Donald took it to, not only is he, when he admit mistakes, he's never wrong. 
you know, and he's not just better than everybody else. He's the best that's ever existed. You know, the smartest, he knows more than everybody. He knows more than the experts. And um, that means that in, in his head, um, he should have all of the power and glory conferred upon him that he sees Kim Jong-un or Putin or Erdogan or Duterte or whomever, you know, pick your authoritarian dictator. Um, and I think it's just another way hanging out with them or being saying they're his friends or what have you is a way of burnishing his own sense of, of his position. But doesn't he recognize that it undercuts his leverage, say, with the Chinese to talk about what a great friend President Xi is, never to criticize him on the human rights, and then to turn around and do what he's done on the virus? He doesn't see those two in opposition in any way. No. Uh, you know, as I said, he's somebody who lives entirely in the moment, which is why there's no – it's weird. Like, in some ways, he's in, incredibly consistent. You know, he's been consistently the same person in terms of his uh, character and in terms of um, his the way he approaches things since he was a child. On the other hand, because he only lives in the moment, and I when I say that, I don't mean, like, mindfully. Um, you know, he's always at the mercy of um, being exposed, right? So he has to be in the moment, being the winner and the best. He doesn't remember. So there's no logical consistency between his position one day and the next. If, yeah, we've noticed that. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, you know, especially if it, if, it, if it suits the narrative he needs in the moment to be winning. Um, and it's, that's why people like Xi and Putin are, are so um, able to play him. You know, and they don't, they don't care if he's inconsistent or contradicts himself. And they also know that, that, you know, Donald doesn't give a shit about other people's human rights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that he has demonstrated that as well. We have maybe six, 10 minutes to, to, to go here. Um, and uh, let me, let me ask a question. That sort of got two parts, but the, one of the, really aggravating aspects of the Twitterverse, and there are many aggravating aspects of the Twitterverse, is the number of people who on a daily basis will say, I knew all along that Donald Trump was going to be this way. Yeah. I saw this. I called this. Everybody, it was so obvious. Um, well, you, you did kind of know all along that it was going to be this way. And from reading this book, it appears um, perhaps your aunt knew all along that it was going to be this way. Others in your family did so the two-part question is this. One, what, if anything, has happened during this first term that surprises you? And secondly, when you look towards a second term, and I've heard you speak about that elsewhere, and you get very depressed and it gets very dark. But when you look towards the second term, what would you think we can expect? Yeah, um, and I do agree with you. One of my favorite criticisms of the book is that there's nothing new in it and it's boring. I'm like, wow, you were at our family Christmas parties. That's fascinating. Um, so I thought like only my family knew what happened at Christmas. But anyway, yeah, it is weird. And I don't see that it's helpful for people to say that um, because I don't think people could have known. 
And the one thing, the only thing that surprised me, and it has nothing to do with how Donald's behaved, nothing he's done has surprised me. It's the extent to which every single elected Republican has lined up behind him, overlooked or championed his most egregious behaviors, and let it all go. It's just horrifying to me. And it's not that I, you know, I, I was a great believer in the Republican Party, but even knowing what I know about what's been going on in the last several decades, it still shocked me to the core that people who claimed to be institutionalists or people who have been sworn to protect and defend the Constitution have thrown it all away on somebody who isn't worthy any of the power he holds and any of the respect accorded to the office, it's quite honestly still freaks me out sometimes. Um, as for the, it can get worse. I mean, you yeah, know, he, Rose is talking about cognitive decline. He seems to be able to say person, man, woman, camera, TV. Oh, um, you, got, you got extra points. It was in order. Thank I you. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, I'm just in the early stages. You're just keeping a close eye on David. <laughs> <laughs> we actually apply the cognitive test to David yeah. on every Deep State Radio podcast, just oh. so that our, our listeners can measure the decline. We, oh, that's wise. That's, that's, that's yeah. good to know. Before we start, it's very hard to tell the difference between the elephant and the rhinoceros, but I think I've got that <laughs> it down. Is. In, in any event, when we go there from here, yeah. we look forward, do you see decline, mania, you know, uh, a, a more out of control person. Uh, I mean, you, you describe, you know, Fred Trump coming downstairs wearing a jacket and tie and no pants um, at one point in his decline. Uh, what do you expect? Yeah, it's a it's a great question um, because one of one of the uh, problems I've seen with people saying, "Oh, he's so much different and he's he's declined so much." is that it's not true uh, in, in the sense they mean it. The only thing that's changed is the circumstances in which Donald lives his life now. He's never been under this kind of pressure. He's never received the kind of scrutiny he's receiving, not that it's enough. He's never received the kind of pushback he's receiving, not that that's enough. But, you know, the kind of stress he experiences on a, a moment-to-moment basis, because part of what's stressing him out isn't, isn't just what's going on in the world and how little control he has over it because he's incompetent. It's his internal need to continue perpetuating this facade so that he doesn't get found out, right? So of course he can't think, of course he can't speak coherently, you know, of course he can't string together two sentences that make sense about things, especially about things he's never known anything about to begin with, right? So what I see happening, though, and, you know, and, and I'm not talking, I think when people say he's worse, they, they're assuming that he has some kind of early um, dementia or what have you. And that, I don't know, that might be happening. But I'm talking more about how his, uh, the psychopathologies he's had over the decades um, are deteriorating because of the stress and because he is starting to feel like he is trapped. So... The shortest way of putting it is to say Donald will never get better and he's only going to get worse. And between now and November, as if polls keep going the wrong way, if, um, 
you know, protests keep happening uh, that that undercut his authority, et cetera, he is going to be doing everything in his power to change the subject. And the difference between what how he did that at the beginning and how he's doing it now is this. In 2017, generally speaking, the distractions were to um, take attention away from something horrible he did, like the Muslim ban or something. Now, the distractions are as horrible or worse than the things he's distracting from. I mean, we have brown shirts disappearing peaceful protesters in American cities. And, I, you know, I'm sorry if that sounds hyperbolic, but... Um, it, it seems pretty accurate to me. So, yeah, I think that's where, where we're heading in the next few months. And a second term, you know, between Bill Barr, Mitch McConnell, Mike Pompeo, Jared, um, and all those other eminently qualified people Donald has surrounding him. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've said this before. And again, I don't think this is hyperbolic either. Uh, the American experiment will be over and we will have failed it. I don't think that's hyperbolic at all. Um, question. Donald Trump looks miserable. Yeah. He, 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 to me, he certainly looks very much as you describe him, like a man who is terrified all the time. Yeah. You know, who, who, who's completely out of his depth, who's terrified of being sort of found out to be out of his depth. Yeah. And found out. But, you know, um, and, and I, I do sometimes wonder, is there a way to entice him out you know, to say, hey, guess what? You know, you can be the absolute monarch of, you know, this 10 square foot spot over here and have your own TV show. And yeah, have a way in, right? Yeah. I mean, it is, is, can you imagine a scenario in which, in which he does say, you know, I don't need your stupid presidency. You know, I'm, I'm much too good for you all. And, and now I'm going off and, and I'm doing this other thing, which I'll be much richer and everybody will love me. Um, any advice on how we can lure him away? But then, as a second question, really for you, I you know you're, you take a, you've taken a big risk yeah. by being out there, and I I don't even want to imagine what your inbox looks like or your uh, you know uh, is this something that has been a problem? Are, are you, I, I hope you have some security because I, I worry that you're probably getting a lot of nastiness coming your way right now. Yeah, I have security. You know, I'm taking the necessary precautions. And oddly, it hasn't, you know, I'm getting hate mail and stuff, but nothing violent yet, which it kind of surprises me, I have to say. But we have a bunker. It's early days. You know? We need a bunker. David has one. In yes. Under I, Vermont farm. Yeah, so far the, uh, the security is working out fine, but I, I may have to take David up on the invitation he didn't extend to me just yet. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, and David will... Rose's, Rose's got it. David Rose's will throw his body on, on the line if necessary to protect him. Okay. Rose, Rose has got a key and has already stocked the bar in that thing, so so all right. we're, we're all set. Yeah, all right. And Rose is Come a cop too, so I, I, I expect yeah. Rose to have my back as well. Um, but uh, as for the uh, first part of that, uh, yeah, of course he's miserable, um, and he's miserable because he's, with the exception of golf. He's not able to engage in all of the things that gave him, well, I can't say joy, but some kind of pleasure uh, in his life before. 
And even with golf, you know, if I did something as much as he plays golf and never got better at it, I'd throw myself off a cliff. So that can't even make him happy, right? Um, What I would say, though, about how to get him out, uh, unfortunately, that too depends on the people around him because he may be getting nothing out of this other than some monetary advantage and, you know, potentially not getting convicted and sent to jail for all the alleged tax fraud he's committed. But there are way too many people who are getting a lot out of it, including the, the people we mentioned before, McConnell, Barr, Pompeo, and many, many others, including most elected Republicans who couldn't get elected without uh, riding on Donald's hopefully very short coattails. So to me, and again, I don't feel sorry for him, he has the blood of so many people on his hands right now that there's no coming back from this. However, just on a human level, it is something of a tragedy that the only people who claim to care about him are doing everything in their power to keep him from getting help or at least removing him from a situation that is incredibly bad for him and us, but certainly for him. You know, you seem to describe somebody who desperately doesn't want to lose this re-election campaign, wants to win, mm-hmm. but probably doesn't want to serve. Right. That, that he's obviously, from your own description, not enjoying the job. Right. Do, does that make him feel trapped in the next four years? And if so, uh, you know, what do you say to those people who think that if the polls continue the way they are, he might actually drop out and just say, I could win, you know, I could have won at any moment. Well, you know, I think what you just said about his wanting to win and not wanting the job was true in 2016, honestly, because it's about winning. Um, And he had no idea what the job was. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know anything about anything, quite honestly, history, geopolitics, politics. It just doesn't know anything. So the difference now, though, and this is something that really worries me, is that in the second term, he will be unfettered. So he's not going to have to maintain any of the proprieties that he still does maintain. You know, uh, he doesn't have to pretend. He won't, sorry, he won't have to pretend the way he does now. Uh, He will be completely vindicated he will be he will have shown that he will never be held accountable because of all his henchmen uh, making sure that he's not. And I think I, I don't think we can imagine how bad it could get. Is that cheerful enough for you? Well, I was about to say you, you actually make Rosa sound like an optimist. Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad. I, I'm glad Corey's here. I'm afraid I would make her cry, and that would make me. Feel <laughs> yeah, I'm a, I, I think you, you, you might. Corey's off. I think on a on a on a boat off the coast of Alaska today. Otherwise, she would have been here. Sounds like a really good place to be. Quite yeah, honest. no, it's very smart. But Rosa, I do think you need to break off a piece of that thorny crown of entropy and immediately send it to Mary because you guys, you know, you got you share a gestalt there. My work here is done. I'm so proud. <laughs> well, Mary, thank you so much. I'm 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 always delighted to find someone else who shares my generally apocalyptic 
mindset. <laughs> yeah. You never, actually, you never know it, but I'm, I am actually, a, or I used to be anyway, like a really optimistic person. Um, and it's just, because it, it, it's not cynicism at this point. It's just realism. Yeah. I think that's right. Well, and, and, and yours is based in a certain kind of knowledge and depth yeah. of understanding that most people don't have. But fortunately for all of us, we have your book. And, um, and people will read it and understand it. And, you know, one of the assessments of it that I read um, was that, you know, it would have a seismic effect, unlike other books about him, because it provides the, the depth of understanding that, that, that we need into, into this, this man's character. Hopefully, as he moves uh, on from the job he has into history and being evaluated. Yeah. Um, in any event, perhaps after the election, we'll be able to persuade you to come back. We can offer you more swag. We have an <laughs> abundance of deep state radio swag. Um, and uh, I, I probably have most of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're delighted. We a bit, I have to say, we're also very pleased that 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 you've known about us and been been following us for a bit. So it it. Uh, it is it is gratifying since we've been doing this for a while. Um, but what we try to do is we try to have enlightening conversations of a kind you wouldn't see uh, or hear elsewhere. And this has been just that. So thank you very much, Mary Trump. And I hope that everybody out there who has not already gone out and and purchased Mary's book, Too Much and Never it's Enough. Multiple copies. But, but yeah, multiple copies. How my family created okay, the world's most dangerous man. <laughs> um, right, share them and uh, and uh, you know go out and get it. And uh, we uh, we thank you for coming. And we uh, we hope that the remainder of your book experience is a good one, and that we can circle back with you in a few months. And that your future Christmas parties will all be better than your past Christmas parties. A low bar, but I, I think uh, I think that'll be the case. But seriously, it's been such an honor. I can't even put it into words. I really appreciate it. Well, Glad to have you. you. We've, thank we, you we've very much. It's been way. a great conversation. Yeah, thank it, you. It has been. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, David. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, everybody, for listening. For more about what we've got going on, um, uh, this week, including a conversation with Zerlina Maxwell. We have a conversation with Leanne Panetta coming up a little bit later in the week. Uh, we've got a few other surprises coming soon. Uh, go to the dsrnetwork.com, and uh, while you're there, you could become a member um, and get some of that great swag that, uh, you know, you may see if you look at the video of this right behind Mary. Um, thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.